text for this morning's sermon comes from Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is a psalm of David, and it speaks to uh, this great theme of, of God's sovereignty over creation. So let's turn our minds and our hearts to God's word now as we find it in Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, Glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. One of the most beautiful things that Grace and I have noticed about Oklahoma are its skies. From the deep reds and oranges of the sunsets and the sunrises to the clear blue sky to the dark foreboding clouds of a thunderstorm, truly the heavens declare the glory of our God. But it can be our tendency to view the sky as a force that governs itself. We often go about our daily lives thinking the weather does its own thing, or the weather does what the weatherman says it will do. We so often forget or are oblivious to the reality that the slightest variable in temperature or air pressure is governed by our God. However, Psalm 29 corrects this type of thinking. Psalm 29 reminds us that all the creation is but a servant to an all-powerful God. Psalm 29 is, is not some fanciful description of storm gods or Mother Nature. Rather, Psalm 29 is a description of the Lord governing the world which He created. Psalm 29 is a psalm that we need to hear and that the world needs to hear. There's much talk about climate change, about the weather changing. We are all aware of the great heat that is happening in uh, western North America. God is in control of all of this, and we need to remember this as we fear what the weather might do. And so... Psalm 29 calls us to give glory to God because He is sovereign and He is merciful. And we will consider this call to, to, to give glory to 
God under three divisions. We will first notice the call to give to the Lord in verses 1 and 2 of our text. Then we will go and look at verses 3 through 9 where we'll see that we must give to the Lord because he is mighty. Finally, in those last two verses, in verses 10 through 11, we will consider what it means to give to the Lord because he is merciful. One of the striking things about Psalm 29 is its order. I had difficulty structuring this sermon because of the order that seems backwards in my mind. Psalm 29 starts with these calls to give praise to God. David starts with praise, but does not necessarily give us reasons to praise the Lord until later in this psalm. I believe our minds are much more naturally inclined to start with reasons to praise God and then move to praising God. But that's not what David does here. And uh, this is important to note as a reminder that we should always be ready to praise the Lord. We are often too slow to praise God. We are too slow to give God glory and strength. Instead, we are quick to complain about the circumstances of this life, our busyness, the bad weather we're experiencing. We are slow to thank God. But David teaches us in starting this psalm with praise that we should not be slow looking for reasons to praise God, but that we should start with praising God. We should, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Now, David starts this psalm with the refrain, give to the Lord. And that refrain is repeated three times. And he specifically calls upon the mighty ones, which is most likely an allusion to princes, to give to the Lord. David specifically calls upon the mighty of the earth to give to the Lord because they are so often tempted to exalt in their own strength and glory rather than glory in the one true sovereign. And also in David calling upon the mighty ones, the the princes, the, the civil rulers to give to the Lord, David is really including the entirety of creation. Men not only of high rank and social status, but also all those below them. If a king or prince does something, It is the typical response of the people to follow that example. Hence, if you've ever been to a performance of Handel's Messiah, you'll see everybody stand for the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, This practice emerged, I believe, the first time that Handel's Messiah was performed. It was performed in the presence of King George II. And when King George II rose in reverence to the the performance of the Hallelujah Chorus, the entire audience rose because that's what the king did. So that brings us back to Psalm 29, this, this idea that if a king does something, all the people will follow that example. If the mighty ones give to the Lord, all those who are under the princes of the earth must also give 
to him. Now, this giving to the Lord is not to be understood in the, in the sense that we can add something to the Lord or that we can possibly increase the glory and strength of God. Rather, giving to the Lord is, is, that, is that basic concept of worshiping God. It is recognizing that the Lord has glory and strength. It is as though the worshiper comes before the Lord, comes before the great King, and bows down before Him in utter humility, in utter subjection, saying, I don't have any glory and strength myself, but I ascribe all glory and strength to You. And so, when we give to the Lord, we are yielding subjection to Him. We are acknowledging that our God is the one who alone is worthy of glory and strength. Further, uh, going forward with this idea of giving to the Lord, it also has the idea of ascribing something to Him. When we, when we give to the Lord, we ascribe something to Him. We speak for something about the character or the essence of God. So when we say that God is Almighty, we are worshiping Him as the one who controls all things. And this is why words are so important when it comes to who God is. This is why God's name is so important. And that's one of the reasons that there is that one commandment that speaks to God's name. The third commandment shall not take the name of our God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To speak forth the name of God, to speak something about the character of God, is to worship God. It is to declare something about him. So we are to give to the Lord. All the nations of the earth are to give to the Lord. And we are to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now the phrase beauty of holiness can be difficult to understand. But I want to draw in a parallel passage here to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, especially these first two verses, have a, a remarkably close connection to 1 Chronicles 16. In 1 Chronicles 16, David is bringing the ark into the tabernacle. The people of Israel are rejoicing and worshiping God as the ark is returned to the tabernacle. And David, is, in his context, he's calling upon all the peoples of the earth to praise the Lord. And in verses 28 and 29 of 1 Chronicles 16, David uses almost the exact same wording we find in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 29. He says, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So given this connection that, that Psalm 29 has to First Chronicles 16, the beauty of holiness seems to be a reference to a physical place of worship. 
It is, it is an idiomatic phrase, an idiomatic reference to the place where God chose to dwell. In David's time, that was the tabernacle. In Solomon's time, it would be the temple. So this call to worship God in the beauty of holiness is really a call to worship God in, in this corporate worship setting, to be gathered with all the saints, worshiping and praising God for who He is. It is a calling for all people to gather together, both the princes and the poor, both the strong and the weak, to praise God. And as verse 9 of Psalm 29 says, everyone in his temple says, glory, glory to God. Is it not a wondrous thing to worship God in the beauty of holiness? This is one of the most joyous settings we can imagine when we are all gathered here together praising our God. I think prior to COVID-19, a lot of us took the corporate worship of God for granted. When we are forced to separate, be distanced from each other, that also we realize what, what, a, what a remarkable thing, what a beautiful thing it is for us to gather together as the people of God, to sing forth God's praises in a corporate setting, not in the privacy of our own homes, but all of us here together worshiping our God. There's, there's a unique blessedness that comes from that. And our main purpose for gathering as a church on the Lord's Day is to praise the Lord. We can sometimes get into the mentality that we are here to be fed, that we are here to receive something. But our main purpose as we gather each Lord's Day is to do what David calls us to do, to give unto the Lord. Our main purpose for gathering is to praise the Lord. And as we will see in the rest of the psalm, he certainly is worthy of praise. Because the psalm starts a new section in verse 3. Here David starts to give reasons to worship the Lord. The first reason he calls us to give to the Lord is because he is mighty. In verses 3 through 9, David describes this, this magnificent and powerful storm. And he describes the Lord's power and might over the storm. And we need to put ourselves in, in a frame of mind of David when we consider this psalm. The storm described here in verses 3 through 9 would have been both terrifying and awe-inspiring to witness. We, in the 21st century, are removed from many of the damaging effects of a thunderstorm. For an Israelite, during the time of David, a thunderstorm of this magnitude would have been deadly. They did not have the houses or the vehicles or the insurance that we do. A severe storm for them if they were out 
on a boat on the Sea of Galilee could mean death. If they were a farmer, it could mean the ruin of their crops, and they would uh, probably starve for the remainder of the year. Or if they were a shepherd, a storm like this could mean that their sheep scatter and get lost. They're eventually eaten by wild animals. A thunderstorm, the historical setting of David, would have been a deadly thing. And David describes this storm for us as though he's, he's witnessing it with his own, his own eyes and he's, he's directly relaying to us what he sees. He starts by describing the voice of the Lord as being over the waters. David's, David's looking out over the Mediterranean Sea and he sees this sea forming over the waters of the Mediterranean. He sees a storm. Clouds start to build. They get darker. The waves start to get more violent. David hears the voice of the Lord, the thunder sounding off the distant coast. He sees the lightning crash. And then storm gets closer to the land of Israel. It gets closer to the coast. It goes near the coastal country of Lebanon where the voice of the Lord shakes the great cedars. And then the storm moves southeast down to the wasteland of the wilderness of Kadesh. This wilderness of Kadesh where nobody lives, which is Quiet, which is eerily quiet. Suddenly, shaken awake by the voice of the Lord. It's clear that David sees that the Lord, that the hand of the Lord is sovereign throughout this storm. David especially sees the Lord in those, in those mighty claps of thunder that accompany this thunderstorm. The Hebrew is very vivid here and, and it just speaks to, to uh, some of the poetic beauty of Psalm 29. We, I, I tried to bring it out when I read Psalm 29, just that repetition of, of the voice of the Lord. In Hebrew, it would be uh, the word voice is the word chol. And it has that sort of thunderous sound, that, that guttural sound. And, and David repeats that, the, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, creating this, this beautiful effect of, of thunder. And in, in, in verse 3, we notice that the voice of the Lord sounds. Then that voice is described as a God of glory, thundering. David says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. David describes these thunders as being the voice of the Lord. He does that seven times, creating this impressive refrain uh, following that threefold refrain, which we noticed in verses 1 and 2, that refrain to give to the Lord. 
And so the vocal point of the storm is, is not the wind. It's not the rain. It's not even the dark, foreboding clouds. It is the thunder. It is the voice of the Lord. And David specifically emphasizes that thunder. That, that thunder is the voice of the Lord to highlight God's utter sovereignty over this storm. Creation is not some creature outside of the realm of God's domain. No, creation is but a servant to the Lord. Thunder is one of those sounds that either holds us in quiet amazement or terrifies us. It strikes fear into the youngest children. It scares our dogs as I cower and whine in fear. Martin Luther, that, that fiery reformer, was left decimated during a thunderstorm. He begged for God to spare his life, and he promised that if God did spare his life, he would become a monk and dedicate his life to the Lord. There's something about thunder that just conveys a raw power and might, that reminds us that we are but finite creatures, that we are creatures of the dust. Not surprisingly, then, the imagery given for the might and terror of God is that imagery of thunder that imagery of the voice of the Lord. It is the voice of the Lord that causes the great cedars of Lebanon to be broken into, utterly decimated by a strike of lightning. David describes these, these great towering cedars as skipping like a calf when lightning strikes it. Something so tall and, and magnificently heavy is made to bounce and skip around like a calf. That is just one small, small image of the power of our God. The voice of the Lord, as David says in, in verse 7, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. It forks the lightning. And this phrase in, in verse 7 is poetically highlighted in the psalm. We notice how all the other verses of Psalm 29 consist of several lines and parallelisms. But verse 7 stands all alone. It is, it is unique. And it gives the impression that this is the greatest attestation to the might of the Lord. Seeing that 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 lightning bolt crashed down to the earth. God, our God, the God who we worship, is sovereign over where those bolts of lightning land. It is His voice that calls them into existence. And it is His voice that decrees where they will end up. We should also realize and remember that throughout Scripture, whenever God speaks in the form of special revelation, it is often accompanied, or it is often compared to a crack of thunder. When Christ was baptized, 
God the Father spoke from heaven and the people around said that it sounded like thunder. In Psalm 18, verse 13, we read that the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. When the Lord appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai, the mountain was said to be encompassed with thick clouds, with thunderings and lightnings. In fact, after the Lord gave the Ten Commandments, people of Israel witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then later on we would read that the people of Israel said, Moses, no, we don't want to approach this God. You be mediator for us. There's something terrifying about thunder causes us to recall to mind who we are. The response of the Israelites to the Lord thundering from heaven was fear. That could be our response as well in the midst of an awesome thunderstorm. We could be tempted to, to fear. After all, cataclysmic events from the creation terrify us because they teach us something about God. The Westminster Confession states by saying, well, the Westminster Confession says that the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God so as to leave men unexcusable. Saying from Psalm 19 and Psalm 8, these psalms testify to us that creation says something about God, says something about God's power, God's might. Power of a thunderstorm testifies to us of the sovereign power and might of God testifies to us that our God is El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. And David ascribes this storm to God, to the covenant of God. We notice that it is the Lord in all capitals ascribes this to the God of Israel very purposefully. He is doing it with the knowledge that one of the heathen gods that so often tempted Israel into idolatry was a storm god. The god of Baal is a mix of a storm god and a fertility god. Yet, David does not say this is the voice of Baal. No, he says, this is the voice of the Lord. It is the voice of Jehovah. It is the voice of the one true God who reigns. It is the voice of His God. Because this is the God of might. He is worthy of worship. 
but he is also worthy of worship because he is a merciful God. As abruptly as a storm started in verse 3, it ends in verse 10. And this ending is striking because in it we are given two pictures. After all of the descriptions of the might of the voice of the Lord, David ends this psalm very quietly. He ends it by picturing the Lord seated on his throne. Even though there is a great tumult by our estimation, even though we might be running in fear from this storm, David pictures a Lord seated calmly over it, seated on his throne, seated as regal king over the creation. But he's not just seated over this small localized thunderstorm in the land of Israel. He is also seated over the greatest storm known to mankind. He is seated over the great flood. Verse 10 says, The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. I'm sure that the story of the flood is not a new one to us. We're all very familiar with the story of the flood. But society has done much damage to it. The flood was not some cute rainstorm in which Noah saved a few giraffes and elephants. The flood was the outpouring of divine wrath and justice upon a God-hating people. Sodom and Gomorrah are often considered the climax of divine judgment upon a heathen people in Scripture. But the flood is actually the severest demonstration of the wrath of God against unbelievers because in the flood... It was not one or two cities that were destroyed, but the entirety of human population was destroyed because of their wickedness, minus Noah and his family. And we must also recall that the first time rain ever fell down on the, upon this earth, it was in judgment. It was not in mercy. God certainly now in his grace makes the rain fall upon the just and upon the unjust as we read in Matthew chapter 5. But this was not the case the first time it rained. The rain fell with a purpose of judgment upon man whose thoughts were continually motivated by evil. Anytime it rains now, especially when a mighty thunderstorm comes and the voice of the Lord sounds forth with might and power from the thunder. We could be tempted to think that God is coming in judgment again upon this earth. And just think of Martin Luther, how he was feeling 
knowing that he was a sinner and that God was a thrice holy God and the only thing that he deserved was God's judgment. We can have those same thoughts. We can see the streets flood here and wonder to ourselves whether or not our sins have become so great that God is going to flood the earth again. It's no mistake that David brings up the flood in the psalm. As he witnesses the mighty trees being split in two like toothpicks by the voice of the Lord. But I thought that God was angry. You can know all the science behind a thunderstorm. You know why the lightning acts the way it does. We can know that thunder is just the, the reaction uh, coming from lightning. But we can still be terrified of it. And it terrifies us because we know we are sinners, sinners rebels against the God who is sovereign over such fierce might. We know that we war against the sovereign God when we break his commandments. We know deep down that we are not sovereign, that we have no power over a storm. And we know that one day we will have to face this sovereign king. But I said the psalm ends with two pictures. First is that of God seated as regal king over the flood. The other picture is that of the very same sovereign king giving strength to his people and blessing his people with peace. Just as the rainbow after the end of a storm reminds us of the Noahic covenant that God will never flood the earth again. So this psalm ends with a promise that God will bless his people with peace. The God who splits the flames of fire in two. The God who sat enthroned over the flood. He doesn't come in judgment. He doesn't come in wrath. He doesn't come in anger. But he comes in peace to his people. The word peace conveys the idea of restoration of relationship. It conveys the idea that there once were two warring parties. The world at the time of the flood warred against God in hot-headed foolish rebellion. And today, unregenerated man wars against God with a hatred and a vengeance. But God does not come in judgment against his people. He comes with peace. He comes to restore the relation that was shattered by our sin. That restoration is only possible for one reason. That is because this very same sovereign God, which we read of in Psalm 29, The God who sat enthroned at the floods 
He came to this earth. This God became flesh and dwelt among us. God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, became man so that we could have peace with this awesome God. And he illustrated that he was a very Lord described in Psalm 29 when he was on the Sea of Galilee. We read of that earlier in Luke 8, verses 22 through 25, when Jesus Christ commanded the thunder to be silent with his voice, with the voice of the Lord. He spoke and silenced the raging of the storm. He commanded the waves and the wind to stand still, and they listened to him. Christ spoke forth, The creation heeded his commanding voice. Christ testified to the fact that he was divine, that he was a God who sat enthroned in heaven. But he didn't come to this earth just to quiet and still a storm. He did not come just to rebuke the wind and the raging of the water. He came to provide salvation for his people. He came not in judgment, but he came in peace because he took the judicial penalty of a treasonous and rebellious people upon himself. Indeed, while we were yet sinners, Christ, the Prince of Peace, died for us. He died on that cross so that we do not have to fear the awful judgment of God when a storm comes. He died so that we could be at peace when we see the storms billow over the plains of Oklahoma. He died so that we could see those storms and rejoice and worship Him, not in fear, but knowing that He is our mighty God who has created this beautiful world as a testament to His glory and His might. He died so that we could be in relationship to Him, praising Him, not only for the salvation He has provided for us, but also that we could praise Him for the beauty of the creation around us. So let us ever give unto the Lord. Let us ever give unto the Lord glory and strength. Let us ever give unto the Lord because He is a mighty and a merciful God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your mercy towards us. You are incomprehensibly far above us. We look out and we see the vastness of your creation. We look out and see the raw power in a thunderstorm. And we are humbled. We have no hope of ever controlling such such a powerful force. 
But you, O God, are sovereign over all things. From the smallest atom to the farthest galaxy, you are sovereign over this creation. And you, as a sovereign Lord, have condescended to a people who are sinful. You have condescended to show us mercy. So, Lord, may we ever give you glory and strength. May we ever worship you. May all the kingdoms of this earth bow before you in worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Respond. Preaching by turning our psalm books and singing Psalm 29. Psalm 29, the A selection. The Lord ruled as king as the flood waters raged. And still shall the Lord rule throughout every age. The Lord will the strength of his people increase. The Lord gives his people a blessing of peace. Let's stand and sing praise to our God. <clears throat>